0: You are now listening to Well-Fed Women, the show that's been radically changing the way women perceive health, fitness, and their bodies since 2015. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr. Submit your questions to wellfedwomen at gmail.com, and you can keep up with the show on Instagram at Women. Welcome to the Well-Fed Women podcast. This is episode number 325. I'm your host, Noel Tarr of coconutsandkettleballs.com. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner and a National Strength and Conditioning Association certified personal trainer. Today, I am thrilled to talk with Sarah K. Hoffman, the woman behind the very popular Gut Health Instagram account, A Gutsy Girl. She has had her own personal experience with gut and digestive issues and has made it her mission to help others navigate this fairly complex and confusing topic. Today we're going to address all the ins and outs of gut health. So what exactly is the gut, what things can negatively impact the gut, and then common root causes to specific symptoms. But we're also going to be talking about what to do about it. So what does healing look like and how long might that take? I always want to provide you all with actionable tips, things that you can actually learn and and do today. So we'll be talking about that and answering many of your questions about food intolerances, food sensitivity tests, going on and then getting off elimination diets and SIBO. I know Sarah has had her own personal journey with SIBO, so we're going to be diving into that. Before we dive in, do you struggle with decision anxiety because... I do severely, especially when it comes to an item that comes with commitment and I'm going to wear. This is why I love Warby Parker and their home try-on kit. It's like a little box of eyewear fashion you get to customize and then try on in your own home on your own time. Warby Parker is committed to providing exceptional vision care online and in stores offering eyeglasses, sunglasses, eye exams, and contact lenses. I actually got my most recent eye exam there. It was by far the easiest eye exam I've ever had. They used modern technology and I was in and out in like 15 minutes. My last eye exam experience was horrible and I ended up paying something like $400 for glasses. So it took me six years before I went back, thanks to Warby Parker. So glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses, sunglasses, progressives, and then blue light lenses are also available. If you've never heard of Warby Parker, it's a contemporary company that has completely changed the eyeglass industry. I actually first became familiar with Warby Parker because I was um, listening to How I Built This, a podcast by NPR, one of my favorites. Go download it. Um and this is one of my favorite episodes. It was super inspiring. And just, I was like, why has nobody thought of that before? Why have we been doing this the same way for so long? Um, they really have just revolutionized the, the eyewear industry. So basically, you go to their website, look at all the eyeglasses, and you pick five pairs of glasses and then try them on for free. There's no obligation to buy. You just get them shipped to you. You try them on in the comforts of your own home with no one hovering over your shoulder. or you feeling, I don't know, social anxiety or weird about having to wear or like try on glasses for too long. I don't know. Is it just me? Um, And then you ship them back with the prepaid return shipping label. I had so much fun with this. I actually tried on things that I usually wouldn't. So I got some red and some pink frames. And ultimately, I got the ombre frames with like brown and pink, which is what I use now. Uh, what makes Warby Par- Parker different is that they circumvent traditional channels and engage with customers directly through their website and retail stores. So they are able to provide high quality, good looking prescription eyewear at a fraction of the price. Go to warbyparker.com slash well-fed. To take the quiz, it will suggest some great-looking glasses that are totally personalized to fit your face and style. Their aesthetic is like a vintage inspired with a contemporary twist. Try Warby Parker's free home try-on program. Order five pairs of glasses to try at home for free for five days. Again, there's no obligation to buy. It ships free and includes a free PP. prepaid return shipping label. Try five pairs of glasses at home for free at warbyparker.com slash wellfed. Again, that's Warby, so W-A-R-B-Y Parker, P-A-R-K-E-R.com slash wellfed. And that link will be in the show notes. Now, let's bring on Sarah. Sarah K. Hoffman is a certified health coach and founder of A Gutsy Girl, a gutsygirl.com, which is an online community geared towards women who are looking for reasonable approaches for healing IBS, IBD, and SIBO, to name a few. After years of struggling with her own health issues and considering there must be more to healing than the answers she was given, she began devoting every last second of studying, researching, and practicing all things gut health and gut healing. I know so many of you can relate to that. She is the author of The Leaky Gut Meal Plan and the host of A Gutsy Girl Podcast, which just launched recently, so go subscribe to that. A Gutsy Girl teaches, preaches, and lives by the motto, heal your gut, heal your life. Welcome, Sarah.
1: I am so excited to be here, Noelle. I was just previously telling you, but I have been such a fan of your podcast. I have been a devoted listener for quite some time. And so I feel very honored to be on it and just sitting down talking with you today.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I love that. I love when I am able to interview people who get it and like understand the podcast and where we come from, because I cannot tell you how many times. I mean, I, I really want good quality interviews and conversations on podcasts, and I want people to have actionable tips, right? Things that they can do where they can go and like take, you know, take steps to change their health like right away. And I will be searching for for guests and stuff and the the process is actually very hard because so many people come from a very gimmicky like there's a lot of red flags, you know, someone may be kind of, you know, you know, know their their stuff on a specific topic, but it is just so laced with diet culture and weight loss, weight loss, weight loss. And like, that's their focus. And I just can't get on board with a lot of that. And I know that for so many women that, you know, sends them down the path of more health issues and it worsens their health issues, right? Like if you get wrapped up in this, like, you should be eating less and moving more like the traditional (laughs) conventional idea of what health is, um, we know that that can spin people into, you know, more health issues, specifically gut disruption and gut health issues, which my community struggles with so much. I, you know, grew up with my own issues. At age 10, I had IBS, fair, really bad. Um, it would keep me from going to birthday parties and I would beg my mom to like come in and pray for me because I was just in so much pain, like just sharp pains. And this was as a kid. And, you know, it was a, a lot of because of like, w- now I can look back and correlate that and say, wow, that's when, it, when I ate like really, <laughs> like, high-fat ice cream, so that really high-fat milk ice cream, I would get these really terrible stomach aches, and I couldn't make that correlation earlier on, but even as I got older, and I know you have such a similar story where, you know, like, I had a lot of gut issues in college, and a lot of it was from, you know, trying to follow this, like, conventional advice of, like, working out and finding your worth and your weight and your body size and all that kind of stuff, so um, talk to me about your personal stor- story, because... <laughs> talking about gut issues and gut health and, like, poop, like, that's not a, like, I don't think most people are like, I want to, like, specialize in poop. So, like, what made you <laughs> so incredibly passionate about healing gut issues and, and helping people find resolution with, you know, their digestive problems? I have,
1: I have, I have such a similar story to yours. Um, but I I am most passionate about talking to women, and actually, everything that I do really is geared towards women. And it all started and stemmed because of this idea that. There's so many things that as women were just, you know, just told like, let's just kind of stay quiet about it. Let's not talk about these topics. And poop was one of them, digestive issues. Um, and infertility was another one. And so when I started doing all of this, it was because I wanted to be quote unquote gutsy. It just happened to be such a fun play on the word gut. And I wanted to bring to light these issues and talk about them openly. And this was back in 2012. And I wanted to kind of document my journey along the way. So I, because I really want to pull in your community and talk to things that are very relevant to them, I'm just going to tell the pieces of my gut story that I feel uh, probably ninety eight percent of you listening right now can relate to, and it wasn't until I reached you know this this place of where I finally found true lasting healing, which I have been quote unquote healed since about 2018, actually since July of 2018, wasn't until I got there when I could really truly and honestly look back at my story and my life as a whole and really put the pieces together and understand how way really led to way. And what I mean by that is like you, you know, I have a story of growing up, just eating processed foods, taking a lot of antibiotics, you know, there's, there's nothing from my childhood that really was different, I would say, I mean, because it's, though it's not okay, it was very common and normal back then, you know, to just, you know, working parents eat, whatever you get sick, you take antibiotics. I mean, in my family, that's what we did. And that was, it was okay. Um, and so I think a lot of things happened then, but what really happened after that is what I think applies to women. And what I mean by that is in high school, of course, I got a very poor body image. You know, I was like most high school girls at some point, something happened. I'll never forget. One day I I saw a boy do this thing with his fingers where he put his thumbs together his pointer fingers, and he said, If your butt can't fit into that, like you know, he was spread it apart, but it was still tiny, right? Your butt can't fit into that, ugh, it, you know, just and I never, ever, ever forgot that. And I think it just really started this downward spiral of chronic dieting in high school. Um, And even in high school, I got really addicted to ephedra, you know, way back Mm -hmm. then. That was kind of the popular thing to do. I just wanted energy. I wanted to, you know, I, I did that. I did anything to try to keep the weight off. Well, then... You know, I, I look back and I, I was very stressed then going to college, uh, you know, just got out of a relationship, a bad relationship, and I was stressed. So then I would eat. I would not eat. All the things happen. And then that was kind of where my journey began because I got really sick my freshman year of college for about two weeks, and I I was never the same after that. And the story, you know, it, it keeps going on and on and on as such that Dieting and working out, then, you know, and by dieting, I don't mean necessarily that people would look at me and say, oh my gosh, you need to be hospitalized. You're so thin. No, I could be eating. I, I always tell this story. I had this thing where for a very long time, every single day, I, you know, wanted to hit the magical 1200 calories. So I would pack. 10 bags, each of a hundred calories of just straight junk. I mean, maybe there was an apple because I was 80 calories in one of them, mm-hmm. but you know, there was anything that could just be a hundred calories. And, and then I would have 200 calories left for at night to eat. And that was it. So it was this yo-yo. It was very like artificial and chemicals and just, just whatever. I I thought I was being healthy. And then at the same time I would work out a lot and I wouldn't work out. And I did this back and forth. I you know, during that time and in, in college and everything, I was on birth control just because, you know, I wanted my acne to go away. I also have a huge history of period dermatitis that was awful. So I look back and I can see that this is my this is my first place and one of my very first teachings that I love to share with women because I'm telling you right now, those things really can lead to the demise of the gut. And I would go Many years with this chronic under eating, over exercising, and you know, looking back, I can make a lot of correlations. But then the second thing that really happened as a result of all of that was that my husband and I, you know, I had this. I'm a very, I'm very Type A. I, I had it all planned out. I was going to get married. Um, shortly before I got married, though, I, I will say I was diagnosed with colitis. Um, mm. But we got married. I was like, okay, perfect time to get pregnant, going to be going to have a baby, you know, in like a year or two. It's, and then we're going to have another one a couple of years later. And I had it all planned out. Well, we didn't get pregnant, didn't get pregnant, didn't get pregnant. And I couldn't understand why. And I look back today and I I'm I'm very faithful. And I I believe that things I truly, truly believe that there is a reason that things happen But from a physical standpoint, I had a doctor who told me, how are you going to ever carry a child if you can't even take care of yourself? Because at that point, I was just exhausted, running myself into the ground, literally, with I was, you know, training like you, I know that you used to run Mm -hmm. long distance, I was doing that wanted to become faster I remember just running and saying lighter leaner stronger faster and I would do that over and over I kept that's what I told myself right so he said that and I've never forgotten that um and so to this day I still am quote-unquote infertile although we have adopted three children now and so I do not want to have a baby at this point um (laughs) you know everything's everything's back to normal now (laughs) but it's like I'm not trying anymore right Mm -hmm. um But that's the second thing that I really try to try to emphasize to women is that when you do all these different things that we think we're doing from society's standpoint of being the face of health, you can really be ruining so many other things. And it and the gut, because it is connected to everything, you really are just Completely tearing your body down as you're trying to strive so hard for something that is not actually probably healthy. So, all of that said, I, that you know that's where I focus. But I will say just to so we can start our conversation a little bit more after you know in between um, when I was diagnosed with colitis, which was two thousand and eight. Um, until 2018, when I was finally healed from everything at one point or another, I have been diagnosed with colitis, SIBO, which I relapsed from four times, uh, a quote unquote adrenal fatigue, <laughs> uh, a low functioning thyroid and, uh, it, you know, unexplained infertility and then severe period dermatitis. So those are all the things that have stemmed from the various lifestyle and dietary choices that I that I made or
0: just, you know, from other lifestyle factors. I want to unpack that because I think that that is a profound concept that is not like people don't bully. Most people don't make that connection. But even people who do, it's, it's hard to understand how that actually works together. So how it, let's just start with, you know, what is, you said it's connected to everything. So what is the gut? Is it specifically the small and large intestine? Is it our stomach? A lot of people say my stomach hurts. So what actually is that? And then we can get into how does starving yourself, over maybe being mentally and emotionally stressed, how does that impact the gut?
1: Okay, so I think when people say the gut, it's just a very it's a, it's a term almost that means nothing except for what I, when I say gut and when other people say gut, they just think somewhere in the stomach region. But the reality is that the GI tract, you have an upper and a lower, right? So in your upper GI tract is your small intestine and in the lower is your large intestine, which we could talk about different things there later. But it's not just when we're talking about the gut, the small intestine and the large intestine. It has to do, and this is kind of where the downfall comes on many different places of people's journeys, the entire process of digestion. And that actually begins before we're even eating. It begins, in the, and that's why the, the whole stress factor comes into play. Even when you're thinking about Eating. You're especially if it's a certain food that you, you know, have a certain preference to or or not preference to, your mouth starts doing something, right? So it's even when we start thinking. And then you're and then it goes there, then your food goes in your mouth, down the esophagus, into your stomach, which is different than you know, because you had mentioned stomach and Mm -hmm. the the intestine, stomach, small intestine, large intestine, which is your colon, and then out through your rectum, your anus, and becomes poop. Right. So it's I think that when people say gut, it's just somewhere in the stomach
0: region. But Mm -hmm. digestion really is so comprehensive from mouth to anus. So in other words, if we are mentally stressed, if we're stressed out about life, if we have anxiety or depression or if we're stressed out about our food. Right. Or if we're scared or fearful of our food, that is going to inhibit and negatively impact our gut. Exactly.
1: So one thing that I actually had to practice when I had when I retrained everything, this final time that I heal, I mean, literally everything. One thing I had to practice is when I am thinking about sitting down to eat a meal, which is very important, not on the go running with a bar, sitting down and eating a meal. What does that pre routine look like? And I used to think that was so woo woo, but it's not. So Hmm. I will give you a small little for instance. I have three small children. They are four, five, and seven, and they are all extremely, um, they have volume levels that are <laughs> out of this world, okay? Like, I mean- I love that. They have their I, volume levels. <laughs> I. It's just, wow. Yeah. So, I know I am very, very sensitive to sound. And I believe Stephanie is too, right? Yes. Yeah, you, yep. can, you can tell I've listened to your podcast a lot. But <laughs> I'm very, very sensitive to sound. And so because I know that, I know it's very traditional and everything. The whole family sits down and eats dinner. But if I listen and watch my kids jump up and down in their seats and screaming so loudly and throwing food and this, that, and the other, I can't eat without stress. And so to to overcome that, one thing I had to start doing was I make sure I'm under no stress when I'm eating. And if that means I eat a little bit before them and then just sit with them at the table and help them process their own mealtime, that's what I had to do. And I found just that one change significantly changed the way that I would digest my food. So things like that, like pre-eating, you haven't even put the food in your mouth
0: yet. (laughs) Which no, I mean that is is a profound concept, and it's hard with kids. It is so hard with kids, and it's hard when we are trying to heal ourselves. Especially, I know a lot of moms here are listening who have new, fresh babies and fresh—you know—I consider fresh to be within the first two years, where you are really you. I mean. In all stages, kids are, need us, but it's really hard when like you have a child attached to you 24 seven and you're trying to heal yourself. So talk to me about what kind of things negatively impact the gut. We talked about some of those mental stressors, but what things have a negative impact on our gut and then Why do they have that impact? Or what are those physiological changes that actually happen in our gut, which can then create symptoms? Okay, so
1: there's obviously, I mean, let's be honest, air can negatively affect the gut, which is why I really try to um come at all of this from a very very practical standpoint because i believe that the more we fear things that is also really contributing to us getting sick and staying sick having said that there are you know there's a lot of research out there around things that affect negatively affect the gut so the first one that i want to just say because it's very obvious we just kind of talked about it is stress and When I say stress, the physiological thing that happens there is that when we're stressed, our body cannot prioritize digestion. It has to prioritize running from the bear. It has to prioritize whatever else we're giving the attention and focus to. So stress is one of those things that is not just what I was talking about, like, oh, my gosh, I'm so stressed. My kids are loud. But stress can also be working out too much. It can be, um, things like, um, the, the, the different things we put in our body on our bodies, um, from the, the cleaning products and the personal care items that anything that our bodies just think, you know, is not willing to accept, you know, that can be thought of as stress. So I know we're going to talk about exercising later, so I'm going to continue on, but another Other things that can have negative effects, obviously um, NSAIDs, you know, over-the-counter drugs, they can have negative effects. Uh, Not getting enough fiber can have a negative effect. So the whole fiber conversation is absolutely fascinating to me because you have two ends of the spectrum. One one side says you don't need any fiber, and the other side says you absolutely need fiber. And I can tell you that I've done both, and I I have very strong opinion, but research does show that not getting enough fiber doesn't allow your bacteria in the large intestine to flourish, and that can cause negative effects. Another one. Okay, okay. Can
0: we pause? This, because the conversation fascinates me too. So, your strong opinion is that you do need fiber, correct? It is. Okay. So, we need fiber, and there's two different types of fiber. Do you have an opinion on which fiber you think is better than the other, or do we just need both?
1: (laughs) I think we need both. Okay. Um I think that and different so I t- I teach and I talk a lot about this cuz I it, it you know it was another aha moment I had along my journey the difference between gut health and gut healing. Gut health we need all the fiber, I believe, in the world, because we're trying to be healthy. We want the prebiotics to feed our probiotics. We want more fiber, diverse microbiome. I mean, that's what the the one of the most well researched tribes is the Hazda tribe. And it has been documented that they get up to 150 grams of fiber a day compared to the average American, maybe gets 10 to 20, maybe. And it just the, the more diverse the bacteria, the better, right? Okay, so. I think that for gut health, all the fiber, you get as many diverse foods as possible. Great. Now, when we're talking about gut healing, I understand because I've been there, I've done that. There is a time and a place where you might not tolerate any fiber and you might be of the meat, fat and broth, more gaps or keto or whatever kind of diet. And that might be what you need for a very short period of time and that's where i went wrong because i hmm. did it for way too long i'm talking 2 to 6 weeks usually is what people you know if they're going to have a benefit from not having fiber they would see benefits then so during the gut healing phase it might look different i do have a post on my website though with high fiber low fodmap foods because i really do believe in
0: fiber hmm. okay Got it. I love that. Um, so what other negative things can negatively impact the gut? So
1: antibiotics, obviously. Right. But again, I. there is a time and a place. I have a post called sometimes you just need the damn medication because it is so true. I get really tired of the shaming around it. Um, and then, you know, really diet in general. And I, I always I don't I don't, I don't even like that word diet because I think women automatically go to I need to diet for my gut to function appropriately and that's not what it means it means foods that are not inflammatory and foods that work specifically for your body not even a paleo diet not specific carbohydrate not vegan not vegetarian no diet a diet that is completely templated for you. Hmm. So I think those are the most, oh, oh, and then the last one that I will say is poor sleep. I never believed that one because I didn't want to believe that one. I, and so I I tested it and I once kept a one month journal on my healing journey. You can see I have it on my website written out (laughs) day, day by day, how many hours of sleep I got and what my gut was like the next day and also what my appetite levels were like and what I was hungry for and what i found is there was a literal difference between seven hours and 45 minutes of sleep and eight hours for me so today i get probably i know i don't know how i do it i i think like you my husband's incredible but i get eight to ten hours of sleep at night because i know how important it is the days Mm -hmm. that i would get seven and a half or less hours of sleep i was famished all day i still am to this day if i don't get enough sleep i feel famished my stomach just feels a little bit off i'm like i'm just moodier i'm i'm irritable and that's no way to live
0: most of my friends in real life know this i am magnesium's number one fan when I, Somehow, when I'm talking to friends in real life, I'm like, are you taking magnesium though? So this just always comes up. And this is because 80% of the population is deficient in magnesium, and it is the number one mineral you need for stress, fatigue, and sleep issues. There's so much research on magnesium. In fact, I was just reviewing some research last week about how magnesium actually reduces PMS symptoms. It plays a role in detoxification, digestion, energy production, stress management and even our heart rhythm. And of course, it plays a big role in our sleep. So magnesium increases GABA, which encourages relaxation on a cellular level and is critical, and that is critical for sleep, so GABA is. Um, And because stress depletes magnesium, this also means magnesium is needed to support your stress response. And in times of stress, When magnesium is depleted, our sleep is inhibited in so many ways, both by cortisol dysregulation, but also by that magnesium um, depletion. So that's why I'm just so excited about Magnesium Breakthrough. I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough because it combines all seven essential forms of magnesium into one convenient supplement. Most magnesium supplements fail because they are not Uh, they are synthetic, and they're not full spectrum. So they don't contain bioavailable forms. And then they don't contain this, uh, like, actually seven different forms and all the essential forms, which all have different benefits. So when you get all seven critical forms of magnesium, you're supporting every function in your body that requires magnesium. And you can reverse magnesium deficiency and continue to support your body during times of stress, and especially during pregnancy with one supplement. I personally take it every night. I take two capsules and adjust according to my stress and sleep and anxiety. So I sometimes will drop it down to just one depending on my digestion. And then other times I'll bump it up, especially during times of added stress or if I'm feeling a bit wound up and it's made a huge difference for me. Today, you can get 10% off with our coupon code MagnesiumBreakthrough.com slash WellFed. Then use our code WellFed10. That's mag breakthrough. so M-A-G, and then Breakthrough, B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H dot com forward slash wellfed and then use our code wellfed10 to get an extra 10% off. I think that's a huge one that probably spoke to a lot of people because I think we get into this habit of like just put, you know, not making it a priority and as you know, if you're a parent, that's can be really hard and it takes more effort, right, to make sure that we're getting to bed earlier and protecting our sleep. And it does take coordinating with our partner to say, you know, you may not need as much sleep as me, which is uh, I think there's actually been a study that showed women need. I can't remember what it was. It was somewhere between like 30 and 35 minutes more of sleep than men and you know, it's like, hey, I, I need that. I showed that study to my husband because I was like, look, I actually do scientifically need more sleep than you. And I need your help so that I can actually get that and, be, and feel good. And we're all happy. So I love that. Yeah, <laughs> just I mean, it, it It made sense to him because in his mind he was like, oh, wow, OK, we're different. We have different bodies. And yeah, we, you need a little bit more sleep. So we're going to work together um, to make sure that that happens. So if someone is experiencing gut-related symptoms, which there are many and you've mentioned, and we'll we'll talk about the specific ones in a second. But if somebody's like, they're just not feeling right, they start to have digestive issues, maybe it's bloating, maybe it's gas, maybe it's, you know, diarrhea, maybe it's just um, like constant cramping, or maybe they've been diagnosed with IBS. Like how do you know what is actually causing it, and what's the actual thing that it like can you talk about maybe some of those root causes to common digestive problems?
1: Yeah, we can talk about that one first. So root causes. I just got done writing this this piece. just it's, I've just kind of kept it tight to the vest right now because I'm still really thinking about it. But when we talk about root causes, there's, there's really three pieces to it. And I think that they, uh, that people get really confused by what they're feeling and what they've been told and what they've researched. And what I mean by that is there's the diagnosis, which means you go to your doctor, your doctor tells you, Oh, you have IBS on your way. Then there's the root cause, which is, Okay, I have IBS, but what does that actually mean? Because IBS is just, IBS is just IBS. It, it's just a set of symptoms really, but it, I can't tell you how many times I was told that and how many times probably half of the people listening to this have been told that. How many times my father was told that who passed away from colon cancer. So it's just, it's, it's a diagnosis, but what does it mean? What's the root cause, okay? And then the third thing is the trigger. And the trigger is usually all of those things that we just discussed uh, all of the different, you know alcohol mm-hmm. and food antibiotics, that, that that sort of thing. So I think it's really important that that when starting your journey or starting anywhere that you really understand those three verticals to begin with. Okay, so if we're talking about root causes, here are some very common root causes of either and or IBS or IBD. Um, okay, One would be SIBO which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Another would be food intolerances. Another could be leaky gut, which is also in quotes because the medical term for it is intestinal permeability. Another could be parasites, yeast overgrowth, could be uh, nutritional deficiencies, very common ones for gut, uh, any, any type of gut problems are zinc, magnesium. And then in certain, you know, every single uh, diagnosis would have specific things like, for instance, B12 deficiency is very common in SIBO. And then heavy metal toxicity could be another one as well. What we find though, and what people are really starting to find is that, yes, those are root causes, but then it almost becomes even more than that. Like for instance, one thing One problem that a lot of people have that really can start to disrupt all of this is that they have motility issues with their stomach and how food is actually at the rate at which it's going through the digestive system. So if they have a motility problem, that could lead to SIBO, which could, you know, the doctor tells them they have IBS. And so they go home with it and they're like, oh, okay, I have no idea what to do. Maybe I'll just not eat dairy. Oh, that's not working. But the reason is because of the motility issue. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's, yeah, absolutely. But those are, I would say, those seven, eight-ish things are the biggest root causes I've seen, and I've researched. Of course,
0: there's you know probably hundreds if you take you know everything mm-hmm. into consideration. So motility issue, just to clarify, is common with, for example, thyroid. Disorders or like hypothyroidism, because if your you're, if your thyroid is not functioning properly, not you know, uh, it's low. So your your thyroid hormone is too low in your body. Your thyroid hormone is responsible for metabolism and your energy and all that kind of stuff. So you could very well have a lot of people with Hashimoto struggle with this, where their food doesn't move fast enough through their digestive tract. And what happens then is, is food sits longer in the small intestine, for example, or the large intestine, and then it'll start to ferment. And then you have bubbling and gas and bloating, and that can actually lead to a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth so even once you're you have the diagnosis of okay you have ibs okay wow the root causes i is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth the root cause of that root cause is actually (laughs) a motility issue which the actual root cause would be a thyroid issue which is a great example of how so many things work together in the body and why holistic treatment is important um So are there any other common root causes of motility issues besides like a hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's?
1: I think another common one is it could be structural. So Hmm. some people, just the way that their intestines are, uh, they're more conducive to to these overgrowth or, you know, slower, faster motility. That's the other one that I think is pretty common as well. Mm -hmm. And actually that, that makes perfect sense because I, most people that have motility as the, you know, kind of final culprit or beginning culprit, they, most women have hormone mixed with gut issues. That's very common. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had it almost everybody. I, I
0: barely can think of anybody who didn't have that combination going on. Right. Because now hormones have to be detoxified out of the body. And the gut is one of those ways where we eliminate, you know, estrogen and all that stuff. So if it's not moving, fast enough out of the body, estrogen is actually reabsorbed. So now we have hormone issues and hormone imbalances, and we can have issues like estrogen dominance on top of all of that, which sounds really fun, right? Um, and it's exhausting. And that's why so many people are like, what is going on? And how do I, e- where do I even start? So are, the, do you have any recommendations for people who struggle with motility issues? How, how, where do we exactly, like, that exact question. Where do people even start? How do they figure out what is at the root cause of their root causes and even how to address some of that stuff?
1: Yes, this is the million dollar question, (gasps) as you said today (laughs) Uh, on today's podcast episode. Um, Okay, so this is the question that is obviously the most asked and the one that I had to really spend a lot of time thinking on for my own journey and when I look at other people and what they did in order to come to this conclusion. And I will give you my three steps that I think every single person should do in order to really start understanding their bodies better in order to heal their gut. So number one, I, if I had to do it all over again, I would never have just jumped into any arbitrary diet. I would not have just what I did was I said, I think this is what's wrong with me. I'm going to do the gaps diet. And Mm -hmm. I would never, ever, ever recommend that to anybody because of all of the things that can stem after that if you don't truly know what's wrong. So the first very first thing I say is don't change anything about your diet or your lifestyle. It might be painful. It might be miserable, but you can do anything for two to three weeks. And you need to get out a journal and you need to do the most food and lifestyle. And that's very, very, very important. The lifestyle piece is so important that you keep track of that too. Food journal, lifestyle journal for two to three weeks and just go through the motions. Keep track of all the things you're eating, all the things you're drinking, how you're living, everything. And follow it up with symptoms. I have my, I have created my own 90 day gut healing journal. And in there is my, um, I do kind of like a normal journal mixed with a bullet journal because that's how I had the most success. And I created a key with different like gut symptoms or headaches. You know, there's so many different things, not just, you know, diarrhea or constipation. I mean, it's, it's mood, it's, it's, um, acne, other skin issues, you know, everything. So there's a key and and you really just want to as meticulously as possible keep track of everything. Do that for two to three weeks. If you're in so much pain that you need to go to the hospital, that's that's uh, that's something completely different. But I'm just saying if you've been dealing with this for two to three months and you're just not getting better and it's just, you're feeling very uh, meh every single day, do this. Start there. Once you're done with that journal, you have now created a story of what's going on so people always ask me well if i am fine today and then the next day i have diarrhea and then the next day i'm fine the next day i'm fine next day that i have diarrhea is that okay and it's like anything can be okay when it's not okay is when it is very consistent over any length of time so if you've been keeping your food journal for two to three weeks and you're finding every single day five times a day you have diarrhea There's definitely something going on. But now you have this story about how you've been living for two to three weeks and you can bring it into a medical professional. At this point, this is this is number two. My then after that, you would do tests based on what that story is telling you and i have a whole guide it's called a beginner's guide to digestive testing because this part gets really confusing too and it's really hard it's really hard to talk about because you know there's the western way there's the functional way there's there's so many different ways that you can go and one way you know you sometimes can use insurance sometimes you can't the another way can be very expensive out of pocket so i understand that the problem is that a lot of times The true issues can only be found by working with someone who is willing to think outside of the box and give you some of these tests that a complete blood count at your general physician's office cannot provide. So the secret here really is that you have to really make sure you're going to find somebody, get recommendations, get referrals, ask around that can help address what your story is telling you. So you go in there, they look at your story, they say, okay, we are going to test you for, um, we're gonna give you a Dutch test for your hormones, we're gonna give you um, a SIBO breath test, and after that then, um, you know, you'll come back in a couple weeks and we'll move from there. So then you go home, you've now taken tests based on this very specific story, And you return to your doctor's office two to three weeks later, and he or she tells you you have X, Y, and Z. When you find out you have X, Y, and Z, you make, this is step number three then, in order to heal your gut forever, you make changes. Of course, you're going to probably have to make changes. There's nothing wrong with that. But you only make the changes that are necessary for what you have been diagnosed with. If your doctor or your practitioner that you trust that has just told you you have SIBO and a low-functioning thyroid says white rice is okay, there's no reason you can't have rice on a daily basis, don't go home and tell yourself that you can't have white rice because of some other old belief, like it's too many carbs, it'll, whatever it might be. It's not paleo. (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly like that. Exactly. It's not right. it's not paleo. So it must not be healing for my gut. You know, right. it's that is where the final trap that I see to, what happens because so that's the third step that you that absolutely has to be done. Those are my three steps. And I think if you follow it's not easy. Though I mean, there's it's so simple. It's so simple. But that that whole that process right there could take you three years.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's very simple. Yeah. So let's jump into questions because I I have so many follow up questions, but they're going to actually kind of come out in some of these questions, because I know we have a lot of like a lot of people end up working with somebody and trying to find resolution. But like you had, you know, they'll relapse or they won't be able to completely clear SIBO or their symptoms still persist. So let's jump into some of these community questions that we can help help our people. So this is from Caroline. She says, and this is again, we're going to be driving some of these points home and there's going to be some repetition, but I think it's very necessary. Caroline says, can overexercising and under-eating cause gut problems? Are there certain diets like vegetarian or vegan, for example, that are more, more prone to gut problems? Also, and I think that this is where we can, we can focus here, Sarah. She said, I took a food intolerance test and had so many intolerances. Do I need to remove all of them for a few months or just the heavy hitters like dairy, gluten, corn, etc.? And what is the best way to approach this for long-term healing?
1: I love this question. There's a lot to unpack. So if I miss something, just remind me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay, so... I will just I'll first address the food intolerance thing because I do think it's really important but I also want to address her exercise uh, one as well. So food intolerances. When I first took a food intolerance test before I knew anything was wrong with me, even before I was diagnosed with colitis, it came back my food intolerance test that I was intolerant to 22 foods. So I avoided those 22 foods like the plague. Didn't matter. I still felt awful i do believe that there is a time and a place for a food intolerance and if you want to get one today great but but in hindsight and looking back what that told me and all that told me was that i had a leaky gut my gut was not things things were seeping through because the physical piece of this is that the the junctures that are supposed to be tight they they loosen up and and in theory different things seep through, you know, different particles, things that are not supposed to get through, get through. And then when you take a blood test like that, everything's showing up that you're intolerant to everything. And so I do believe that, that you can use pieces of that, but I, I think that you should go back to step one, which is the journal and really try to understand it and go back to the drawing board versus just you know, haphazardly removing all of these foods uh, because it it's just going to lead to down a rabbit hole of excluding more and more and more. That's what I think about the food intolerance test.
0: Can so our. Are there any do you actually recommend any food intolerance testing like because there's so many different ones out there and I've heard a lot about MRT and are, are like and I I mean, a lot of functional medicine practitioners or maybe just even general practitioners will recommend them. And Sarah, there are so many at home tests now that people are doing. So are are, are they actually, you know. As there are some that are more accurate than others? And if somebody, if the result, if it's because of a leaky gut, like you said, if somebody heals their gut, or I'm assuming that those will no longer show up on a, on a test.
1: Should yeah, be an interesting exactly. experiment. <laughs> yeah. And, and in fact, I keep wanting to go back to my doctor to test now because I do eat anything and everything today. I. Mm. And I mean, obviously those 22 foods, but you know, all that and then some, but I would be really curious now to see if I went back, what, what it might say Mm -hmm. Um, as far as any that I recommend, honestly, I mean, there are so many on the marketplace and truthfully, I don't think that the testing matters as much as interpretation of results. So I find zero problem with people if they want to do their at-home testing. But what happens then is that if they're not working with a practitioner, they're just taking matters into their own hands. And that's, that's just going to be like, running on a treadmill. <laughs> You're going to yeah. get nowhere. Um, and so, you know, obviously there, there's everly well, there's, I mean, there's even SIBO at home breath tests that you can order for yourself, but it's like, if you test positive, what are you going to do? About it, mm-hmm. you know, like you have to really find someone, a nutritionist or some kind of medical practitioner that can help you interpret the results. So for me, after I got that one done, what I did then was they said, Okay, well, now let's do, let's, let's do prick tests to make sure you're not allergic. And of course, I wasn't. I wasn't alert. I'm not allergic to anything. And so those, like this, the skin test did nothing. So again, it just went back to, Okay, how do we now heal up the gut lining so that I, d- that you don't show, you know, that you're uh, intolerant to all these foods. So that's what I, that's,
0: those are my thoughts on that. What does it, how does a food intolerance test work? Is it like, cause I know there are a lot of different ones. The ones you took, was it a blood test and it just looked to see if you had certain proteins in your blood? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Wow. But, but
1: I, there might be a lot of advances today because Mm -hmm. I did my food intolerance test, I think in 2006 or 2007. And I mean, so when I got the results back, it was like, okay, avoid these 22 foods. And then maybe because, you know, because you reacted to this, you know, cheese, maybe you should just avoid all dairy then. You know, it it was just like that, like very Mm. casual, I guess you could say. Uh, So, but, you know, it's just a matter of how you want to spend your money too, because all of these tests, it's not cheap. It adds up very, very quickly. So even if your food intolerance test comes back and it says you're intolerant to three or four things, I mean, what are you going to do about it? Well, what you're going to do about it is you're going to heal your gut, right? But but there could be another infection or something else going on that a different test that's, I'm not I'm not necessarily saying more credible, but that has, that you can do something about, right? You can't really do anything about food intolerance except heal your gut. But what does that look like? Well, if you, you know, ultimately it ended up being SIBO and, you know, you need certain herbals or an antibiotic or something like that's how you're going to heal your gut then. And then the food intolerance, it's like a trickle effect. Then the food intolerance gets better. Your, your thyroid gets better. Everything gets better. Right. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's just a matter of deciding, do you want to spend your money on that? And personally, I wouldn't. You can find out the food intolerance by food journaling.
0: Hmm. Talk to me about over exercising and how that might lead to gut problems.
1: Oh gosh, I <laughs> I battled this for years and I to this day believe I would have never relapsed from SIBO four times if I had just listened to my body and I had just oh it's, su- it's such a hard lesson to learn but I if if your listeners take anything away this is this is probably going to be one of them. So we all think that I'm going to exercise because it's really lowering my stress levels. And I told myself that over and over and over, you know, I, so that my anxiety is not high. I need to just run eight miles today, you know, and it's going to really bring down my stress levels when in fact running is a major stress on the body. Even doing like what I learned was that I couldn't even in the beginning of my true final healing phase, I could walk. And that was pretty much it. And that was fantastic. And I, I swear by walking for anyone and everyone living. But what it comes down to really is the total time, the intensity and the frequency. So for me, I was running, you know, an hour or two sprints and I was doing it five times a week. Or, you know, I, I hear this CrossFit people come to me and they're like, I just don't understand, I can't get my gut right, and I'm eating really healthy and I'm going to CrossFit and doing it four to five times a week. And I'm like, that could be it. Because CrossFit, I love it. I mean, I, it saddens me to have to, to say this because these things are very fun for a lot of people. I know it sounds dreadful for a lot of people to run a half marathon, but for me it actually was fun. But the problem is total time. And then you're, you're working your body at a hard pace and then you're not recovering for even 12, 15 hours and you're doing it again. Your body doesn't understand anything, but this is stressful. And right now you're telling me that you want to prioritize working out and, you know, getting your six pack abs. You don't want to prioritize letting me just rest and heal. And that's what I want to do. And the irony in all of it and what i was able to look back on is when i was at the peak of my fitness levels and i was you know working out so hard peak of my fitness levels also the peak of me feeling absolutely miserable and the inflammation weight i was so afraid to step off of the treadmill because i was like i'm going to gain all this weight i'm going to feel miserable but when i had no choice and decided okay if nothing changes, then nothing's going to change here. So the first thing, one of the very first things I'm going to change is I'm just going to stop working out. I'm just going to walk 30 minutes a day. The weight just did its thing. I got to my set point theory, you know, (laughs) set point theory, just Mm -hmm. means your body goes exactly where it wants to go. And it did that. And I didn't have to try and I didn't have to, I, yeah. So all of that said, it comes down to your total time of your how long you're working out, the intensity of that workout, and how many times per week you're working
0: out. Hmm. This is a great question, and I'm sure one that everybody wants to, wants the answers to. This is from Jodi. She says, How long does it take to heal your gut after making changes to diet and lifestyle? When would you expect to notice a difference if it's working?
1: Yeah, this is a very good question. I have almost got how long does it take to heal my gut? Because <laughs> the answer is it's it's not a it's not a exciting answer but it's it takes as long as it takes you to find out really what's what's the root cause and what's going on and when you can address that but let's say just for conversation's sake that Jody knows exactly what is wrong with her and she does have her diagnosis i believe that how long it takes is really it's dependent upon the severity and or the length of time that it really took to get to that place. So I believe that I had a decade long journey because I did a decade long. I did, a, I did made a lot of mistakes along the way. And I, you know, I really ran myself to the ground and, and I had a lot of very complicated issues. So I think that's, that's one of the biggest factors is just first, if you know what's wrong, then that specific condition knowing how long and what it takes to, to heal for that. Like it's obviously going to take a lot longer to, you know, even get into remission from like colitis or Crohn's or, you know, celiac is a lifelong thing or whatever it is. than it is if you had, uh, you traveled abroad and you got an infection, a lot of times an antibiotic can clear it up. Mm -hmm. Um, The way that you know, though, too. So this is something that I, that I think provides people with a lot of inspiration and hope is that if they make very intentional changes, you know, they stop the intense workouts and they eat the foods that are right for their body, not a diet, but the right for their body, and they start journaling it and tracking it, you can truly see a difference and feel better within days. Because that is actually how fast our cells turn over every 72 hours, I believe it is our microbiome cells turn over, you can start to see a massive difference immediately, but how long it actually takes to heal is a different story.
0: So let's talk about the food and nutrition piece of this, because there are a lot of diets like GAP and AIP and all these elimination protocols. So after somebody figures out what's wrong and they do do an elimination approach, maybe they did like this is from Alyssa. And she says, after elimination, very strict for an autoimmune issue, how do you reintroduce foods? She says she's feeling a little bit stuck. And likewise, which I think is a really good kind of follow up um, it's from, this is from Lizzie. She says, how long after cutting out dairy and gluten will it take my gut to heal? Which you just kind of addressed, but can I ever eat gluten again? (laughs) That was a very popular question (laughs) in Facebook. Like, can I eat gluten again? Is this ever going to be a real thing? (laughs) Yes,
1: you can. I started fermenting and making my own sourdough bread and it's the most incredible thing ever. I love Mm. it so much. I even eat, you know, traditional gluten here and there. Yes. The good news is that honestly, I swear on my father's grave. I eat anything and everything today and I am perfectly fine. Now, does that mean I go and overdo it? Never. Because again, I'm, I'm here for the long haul and for optimal health, but I exclude nothing, 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 nothing. Um. So there, there is hope and you can get there. Absolutely. As long as it's not an allergy, obviously, you know, I mean, some people or if you have celiac, I mean, no, you can't ever have gluten again. There's no there's there's nothing you can do for that. Um, but there is hope if it's, you know, anything out there, m- most things. Um, and what was I'm sorry, what you had asked another question to oh, how to reintroduce things. Yeah, so. This is this is a very it's it's challenging. I actually have an entire blog post how to reintroduce foods because in my journal there are two symbols for reintroducing foods. There's an R which stands for reintroduction and there's an N which stands for a new food. So typically when people go on elimination diets they they eliminate a lot of things and you know whether whatever kind of opinion you have on that is fine. But at some point I just beg people, please start to reintroduce foods. You cannot diet harder. It's not going to help heal you any faster. I can promise you that. So you start adding things back in. And let's say you have always eaten, um, let's say you've always eaten a lot of broccoli, but you took out a lot because you knew, you thought it was causing you a lot of gas or whatever. When you add that back in, I always say slow and go. So, the first day you're gonna add I'm just doing broccoli as an example. I don't care what you add back in, but you've always eaten it. So you the symbol is an R, so you're reintroducing that in your journal. R equals half cup of broccoli. And you know, I I don't I don't want anyone measuring on a scale or doing anything. Just eyeball it, but but quantity really can matter, especially for certain conditions. So no need to get super strict about it, but you know, half cup, whatever, but just slow and go. So you added that back and then make note, you know, one to three days. How how are you feeling? Anything, you know, make note. So just slow and go. Now, let's say, it's something that's brand new that you're reintroducing back in because let's say your doctor has told you, I really need you to start adding in a bunch of fermented veggies. You're a little bit unsure about it, but you're like, okay, I totally trust you. I know I need these prebiotics. I know I need I need all this stuff. You've never had kimchi before, so this is a brand new thing. You use the letter N and you put in you know, two tablespoons of kimchi, kimchi, by the way, you can just do the juice instead of the full food if you want to go really slow and just start adding in that, that good, good stuff. So that's a new thing you add in. And then you wait a couple of days and see what happens. You want to go slow. And again, th- my post really breaks it down because I really, really want to help you do this, but you go slow. And then you also, in addition to that, you want to think about Different categories of food, different types of food. So, let's say you are wanting to add back in dairy, right? So, instead of just adding back in all the dairy in one day, you're gonna want to add, let's say, cheese. You know, certain type of cheese on Monday. Okay, you wait a couple of days. You had no reactions. Perfect. That's great. Now, maybe on day three, then you want to add in yogurt. Let's see how we do with that. Cause they're, they're different though. You know, like the way that they're, they're processed or, um, you know, other ingredients in it. It's another thing I teach on is ingredients versus ingredients, ingredients, meaning broccoli, meat, and rice, or ingredients, meaning a cupcake that has flour, uh, Hmm. sugar, butter, you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. it's, it's, It's really important for food journaling and for reintroducing foods. That's a mistake that I made over and over and over and couldn't understand. Um, But I think that's the best way to reintroduce foods. But I like I said, you can read the full post. The most important thing is that you do reintroduce foods.
0: And what if somebody has symptoms? Like what if they're reintroducing foods and they start to get these negative symptoms? Does that mean they need to pull it back out and reintroduce it later or keep on with the reintroduction?
1: personally, I think you either go down in quantity or just pull it out and try something else similar to it. Like I like I gave the cheese and the yogurt example. You I know, mean, maybe like same category or like some people there they have eliminated all FODMOPs. Maybe they add in something that has you know, on the first day, the fructose, and that doesn't work for them. Okay, well, then maybe the next on the third day, they try an oligosaccharide, which is the O in the FODMAP, you know what I mean? Like, so Mm -hmm. stay within the same category to see like, maybe it's just that specific food. And that's what I mean by you can't just say, I'm going to follow a paleo diet, I'm going to follow a vegan diet, I'm going to follow GAPS, because there's always going to be something that's not right for you based on your current Circumstances, your genetic, ma- everything. Hmm.
0: And the purpose of doing an elimination diet is to heal the gut in the short term, and then always reintroduce. Would that be correct?
1: Yeah, it's that it's it's like the four R's. You know, it's remove, and then you you know repopulate the good bacteria. It, it's just like yeah, it's a whole process. Removing right. anything that could be inflammatory or irritating to the lining, or I mean, and it is strict. You know, I. And that's why I think you have to be really sure that that's the right thing and the place for you to start because it is strict and too often women just want to get stricter than.
0: Yep. You're exactly right. This last question is from Sarah. Um, And she's been dealing with some stuff for quite some time. So I'm excited to get your opinion on this. She said, how do you resolve SIBO and dysbiosis once for all? Sorry, I know this is a huge question, um, but you have experience with this. So she said, my stool test showed dysbiotic bacteria and a SIBO breath test was positive for hydrogen. I did two rounds of... Rifaximin, and I think that's an antibiotic, and symptoms were way worse. I feel at loss for what to do next with a history of 10 years of IBS and gut issues, and I can't even imagine having a healthy and functioning gut at this point. Um, and then Lindsay followed up and says, This one, I have hydrogen, SIBO, six months, and $1,000 in herbal antimicrobials later, and I feel no better than when I started. Oh, <sighs> this, is, this
1: is a topic I could talk
0: about SIBO forever because...
1: I, oh my gosh, I'm super passionate about it. Okay, so here's a few things I want to say about this. I want to first address the herbal. Um, So I, too, did herbal antibiotics for about six months to a year, I believe, and I didn't get any better. And this is, you know, kind of around the time when I started to think, we have to start marrying Western and non-traditional medicine a little bit better. And we need to stop shaming people that might actually need an antibiotic. And so because I thought that if I stopped just doing herbals and treating it like that with uh, herbals and and uh, diet, that I was going to be shamed. And I was like well, you're not very natural. So I fought it for a very long time. So what I want to say to you is that just please listen to this next part about what I'm going to say and consider something different. So I don't know, you're taking your herbals, I don't know how severe your SIBO is, but for me personally, mine was very severe in the sense that by the time I was diagnosed with SIBO, I had to do B12 injections to my stomach because I was so depleted of nutrients. And most of our nutrients Our food is digested in the small intestine and absorbed there. And so if you're, you know, really tired and and finding that you're just that's, you know, you're not getting better because you're pretty severe. So having said that, you both have been diagnosed with the hydrogen. So that was me in the beginning. I was diagnosed with hydrogen. And then along the way, as I kept getting worse, it was hydrogen mixed with methane. And it was just a whole host of problems. Uh, here's what I will say about the Rifaximin. So Rifaximin is the antibiotic that I took. It is the most common route that doctors will go, but here's the problem. Depending on where you get your Rifaximin or what kind of doctor you're working with, it is one of the most Expensive prescriptions for gut problems out there. And I cannot, I still cannot truly understand it. I, you know, I've I've done a lot of research and I think I've gotten to the bottom for why it's so expensive. But it's very expensive, number one. So if your insurance will pay for it, that is fantastic. And I'm guessing you had your insurance pay for it. That but the problem is insurance has approved it for mostly, and a lot of times, traveler's diarrhea. And for traveler's diarrhea, you get a prescription for two weeks. So she didn't mention, I think Sarah is her name, mm-hmm. she didn't mention anything about how long she was on Rifaximin, but I can guarantee it was 14 days. And at 14 days, I have a blog post called My 28-Day Journal... Uh, with rifaximin and neomycin. I had the neomycin as well in the end because of the methane. But my point is I journal every single day what I took and how I was feeling. And I will tell you on day 14, miserable. I'm still, I'm still very miserable at day 14. And the point of this is that sometimes and most of the time, you need a lot more than a 14-day course of rifaximin. It's just that you can't get it. And the way that I got it is that I worked with a naturopathic doctor who worked with a pharmacy in Australia, and I was able to get a 28-day course of it. And it wasn't until day 26 when I really started feeling better. So I'm I'm just saying this because this is something that not a lot of people know about. Um, I have a an ebook called Reasonable SIBO and the, the information for that Australian pharmacy, I think it's the Center for Digestive Diseases in Australia, is where your um, practitioner can get the, the prescription. Not only can they get you a longer one, but it is so much cheaper. I'll never forget when the, the pharmacist called me and said um, we just want to let you know before you come get this prescription that insurance won't pay for it. So it's going to be $1,800 for a two week. Oh. And I was like crying because I didn't, I, we didn't know what to do. And my husband was like, if you need it, you need it. But I was like on principle alone, I'm not paying that, but I'm glad that, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm thankful that I didn't because it led me to finding this Australian pharmacy that I'm now able to share with so many other people. And that whole prescription cost for four weeks was like with shipping and everything from Australia, less than $400, which is still, you know, a hefty amount, but it is what I needed. So that is one thing I will say. The second thing I will say is if your SIBO is not that severe and it's not that the 14 days didn't work for you. Second thing is, is What did you do during the course of the antibiotic and what did you do after? So while you're on the antibiotic, I know this is people have differing opinions about it, but I've tried both. And I will tell you that I had to be eating FODMAPs at least to a degree while on the antibiotic. If you think Hmm. about it, the bacteria have to be out, they have to be out to play so we can kill them, right? And if they're not, if we're keeping them into hiding, we're not really eating anything, what are we, what you're, you're actually probably feeling okay then you're, you're not getting anything, right? So I tried it both ways. Uh, The first time I ate no FODMAPs, I relapsed in like a month. Um, So I would say that then afterwards is also critical. You have to have a game plan for after the SIBO antibiotics. So sometimes that's going to mean remaining low FODMAP for a period of time. But usually what it means is what was your underlying cause? If you don't know why you, the SIBO was there to begin with, it's going to come back, even with a 28 day course, because it happened to me three times, three subsequent times until I realized that for me, my issue was motility and I worked on that tirelessly. I, to this day, I have to work on it. Um, and so I think that's the second thing to really understand is what are you going to do right after that antibiotic?
0: What did you do to, you just like blew my mind there. So what, because I have so (laughs) many follow-up questions, we are getting to the end, but I think I'm going to, I'm just going to have you back on so we can do a part two. But I do want to ask, what did you do for the motility? Like, what are you doing to improve the motility? Because I feel like a lot of people actually, their underlying cause is motility issues.
1: A lot of things. So in the beginning, um, I, I did take digestive bitters. For me, my motility problems were caused because I literally had almost no stomach acid from years of chronic dieting. And just as you age, all of that, all of the digestive enzymes in your stomach acid naturally decrease. Um, that's a whole nother conversation in and of itself. But I had to really work on increasing my stomach acid with, with natural things like apple cider vinegar. But also I I do and I still take minimal, but the HCL pills just to help get that up. Again, don't mm-hmm. do it unless you know that's your problem. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's, that's something that I had to work on for motility. Uh, other things I did... Um, this is also very controversial, but but once I got my mind in the right place for healing versus uh, starvation, um, one thing that does work incredibly well for the for motility is to rest and digest. So I do practice meal spacing, and I practice intermittent fasting, but with a caveat that I don't do intermittent fasting any longer than 13 or 14 hours. I do it very short amount of time because I do it for strictly for digestion and motility to let. So, for motility, you need to be able to allow the MMC which stands for the migrating motor complex to be able to do its job and its job is really just to help if you think of it like a sweep, sweep through your digestive system and clean everything out. I don't mean clean everything out like you're going to have diarrhea everywhere. I just mean like really help your food keep moving along at the pace that it's supposed to go. But it only is activated every 90 to 120 minutes. So somewhere between there, you should, I personally don't eat in between Mm -hmm. meals. And then I just eat more than when I do eat. So those are some of the biggest things I did to help my motility. And I swear by them to this day. Oh, also, I do take, um, and I'm I'm very open and honest about this. I do take LDN, which is low dose naltrexone. I was first given it when I was diagnosed with colitis, or sometime after that, because it's a it's an alternative drug. But a lot of research then showed that it is very conducive for gut motility problems and in, in those who have SIBO. And so my doctor suggested that I just stay
0: on that. And so I, I do take LDN every single night. And did you keep doing SIBO breath tests to, to confirm that it would come back? And then did you or, or are you just more looking at symptoms? Straight symptoms. Yeah. Uh,
1: it's it's one of those things where I had very classic symptoms. I mean, mm-hmm. I, can, I can literally tell if I'm even a little bit feeling off. From mm-hmm. SIBO or like from any kind of incorrect ratios of bacteria in my small intestine, I can feel it and I know it. And and because of that, there's um, a supplement called dysbiocide that I always have on hand. That really, uh, I'll take you know very religiously for seven days, and then I also don't work out. I really, I just really focus on. Resting, digesting, and I, I get back to normal immediately. So, yeah, there. And so some of those things I still do to this day. Like I said, the HCL, mm-hmm. I do. I do. I mean, apple cider vinegar, things like that. Um, but they're all they're natural things. You know, I don't. I don't take a bunch of supplements or anything anymore. Do you take a probiotic still? I do. I take one now because I believe in flourishing with as many different. Mm-hmm. Microbes as possible. I want. I want it all. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a hard conversation because I talk to so many people and do so much research about SIBO, and it's very controversial. When you have SIBO, or if you have histamine intolerance, or you have all these other things, you have to make sure there's. Million probiotics on the market these yeah. days. They they all do a great job of marketing that they're doing you good, but the reality is that there's very specific ones that people need for very specific points on their journey. And I have a uh, blog post all about strains and species, and that that might be interesting for some people. Mm-hmm. I will I will tell you though that you know do your research on probiotics. <laughs> So yeah. you know that. I mean, it's
0: you just want to do your research because it's a lot of it's just snake oil. Yeah. The last question I had is is about the like. So if somebody's doing the herbal antimicrobials and and not the. So say they're treating SIBO with tr- and trying to do it with the antimicrobials, and they've been doing that for a while, the herbals. Should they be doing, like you said, eating higher FODMAP foods and trying to kind of stoke the fire, so to speak, with that as well? Or is that more just for if they're on the antibiotic course?
1: I've, I did it where I was eating FODMAPs. Now, it didn't work for me, but that's not to say it's because of that. Because mm-hmm. again, I needed the antibiotic. Uh, I have heard though a lot of people when they're doing the herbals and they're going the more quote unquote natural route, they don't do fodmops while doing herbals. Okay. But again, I think every practitioner has a different opinion on it, and that's yeah. what makes it very difficult. So I think the herbals one is a little bit more dependent on what the practitioner, because because not only is it that it's it's there's different combination of herbals, you know, it's there's not just one herbal protocol. I mean, there's tons at this point, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it includes FC Cytle, dysbiocide, oregano oil. I mean, there's so many different combinations. I took this one called GI Synergy that was kind of like an all-in-one and then a couple other random things with it. But I think it really just depends then if you're doing the herbal route, what that practitioner has found success
0: with with that particular combination and and after that's all done you're talking uh, you, you mentioned making sure that you're improving motility after the fact, is it also just to kind of rest people, like rest their minds? Because I know it's scary. Like you said before, antibiotics negatively impact the gut, but now we're taking antibiotics to heal the gut. So do people also need to be focused on, okay, now I'm going to take probiotics to kind of repopulate after they're on the, the antibiotic, or I'm sure their practitioner would sort of have them on that process. But is that what like kind of a normal process looks like?
1: That is what a normal process looks like. I will tell you. As soon as I got done with the antibiotic, I did not jump on a probiotic right away because the idea of a probiotic right is that we want to add more bacteria. But if the if the overgrowth isn't it still isn't cleared, we don't want to be adding more right then and there. So I yeah. would definitely tread lightly with the probiotic. What I will say about the antibiotic with for SIBO in particular is that it does stay localized to the small intestine, so it's not. I mean. A lot of doctors will say it's it's not disrupting your entire gut microbiome. It does really stay localized to the small intestine. Having said that, I think there are little things that you can do. If you're getting done with any normal antibiotic course, yes, of course, I think you should take probiotics even with it to counteract some of it. And then afterwards, SIBO is just a little bit different of a beast. And personally, I never did probiotics right after. What I did do is just started to incorporate um Different foods. I tried, you know, I little by little added back our FODMAPs back in just because, you know, those are (laughs) really healthy foods, which is tragic that they're FODMAP, you know, Mm. seen as so bad for SIBO. Um, And then really it came down to the lifestyle stuff. It really came down to the lifestyle. Sleeping. (laughs)
0: <laughs> getting midnight. your sleep and not over exercising and yeah. managing your stress yeah sarah thank you so much you are a wealth of knowledge i have so much more i want to dig into so we're definitely going to have you back i actually had we have already talked about this but i want to talk more about dysbiosis and SIBO with you so um if i can have you back soon i know you got your own podcast going on you have a lot going on so tell me where um we can find and follow you yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much everywhere
1: as a gutsy girl. I have a YouTube channel. My podcast just a gutsy girl, which, by the way, you have to come on it, too, because I have a very specific topic we could do there. Oh, I'm down. <laughs> um, be fun. And my website's a gutsy girl. Instagram's a gutsy girl, so yeah, come ask questions. I'm I'm a pretty open book, and I tell it like it is today because I believe that if someone would have shaken me a little bit more and was like, "What are you doing?"
0: Mm. <laughs> I would be far better off. So um, yeah, I would like to. I'd just love to connect with you awesome. Hey, so everybody follow her on Instagram. She's got a fabulous Instagram. That's how I, you know, connect with you when I started reading some of your stuff, and it's fantastic. Um, we will link to everything in the show notes. I was taking a little some notes, and I may not have links for every little thing that we mentioned, but I will make sure that I try to put it in there, and then I'll work with Sarah to make sure that we link to some of the things that she was mentioning in terms of resources on her website. This was Uh, a podcast that was packed with information, so you probably just go ahead and plan on listening to it a second time um, and definitely come into our Facebook group. It's the Well-Fed Women Holistic um, Health Community and you can comment and and talk in there too and that's where we got all these wonderful questions. I hope we got to to most of them and like I said, I'm going to have Sarah on again because this was just fantastic and we have so much more to talk about. Thank you, Sarah, for being here um, and and uh, yeah, we will talk soon. And for more from me, you can go to coconutsandkettleballs.com. Again, for more from Sarah, go to a gutsy girl, that's G U T S Y G I R L, dot Thanks, guys, for being here. We will talk to you next week.